Well, hi, folks. Welcome to the very first episode of the Great Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Calvin Smith. And as this is likely the way that many people will be introduced uh, for the first time to the program, I just want to take a couple of minutes to unpack a couple of things here briefly before we really get into the meat of uh, what we're going to be doing on this platform, which is what the entire Answers in Genesis ministry is all about. And that is upholding the authority of the Word of God from the very first verse. So, First of all, uh, the acronym GREAT, as in great conversations. Why GREAT? Well, GREAT stands for Gospel, Relevance, Evangelism, Apologetics, and Training. And that's what we're going to be relating everything that we discuss here um, back to. So G, the Gospel. Um, you know, the, how, how the good news in the New Testament is directly related to the bad news in the Old Testament, in, in Genesis. Um, R, relevance, the relevance of how Genesis is relevant to all Christian doctrines directly or indirectly. It's the seedbed of all of Christianity. E, of course, is for evangelism. How do we share the love of Christ in a world that's increasingly intolerant of and unfamiliar with God's word in a way that they can really understand? And A is for apologetics, of course, meaning being able to give a defense for your faith. And um, and and uh, as the, the Apostle Peter talks about in 1 Peter 3.15. And of course, T is for training, which... In this constantly changing battle that we find ourselves in, we all need, especially our youth. So we are in a spiritual war and things aren't just going to turn around because of, you know, a great sermon that you hear this Sunday or your favorite politician or some cool worship songs or a virus or the milk of human kindness. The church needs to develop a long-term strategy to get equipped and, and, and to help train up a next generation of young people that love the Lord their God with all their heart, strength, soul, and mind. And we need to implement that as soon as possible and really reestablish the authority of God's word in our churches and in our culture. Now, another thing you should know is that this is a non-denominational program. So, you know, aside from some of our guests who may offer a you know, a, a specific a personal theological outlook and so on. Um, we're going to be exploring these topics from a, a position that supports the entire body of Christ because all Christian doctrines directly or indirectly are founded in the book of Genesis, especially Genesis 1 to 11. Now, today I'm going to unpack some content based on a talk that I've been doing at conferences and, and churches now, uh, you know, whenever I'm asked to come and speak at a church on the importance of Genesis um, to the Christian worldview, that talk is called Genesis, the Missing Piece of the Puzzle. And so um, I'm just going to go through some of that information just to establish a baseline for the program here. So look, most church leaders would agree that the Western world is becoming less Christian every year. There isn't a doubt about that. Nations like Canada, the US, Australia, UK, you name it. <laughs> Nations once built on biblical foundations are watching the utter collapse of godly values in our cultures. And Christians seem powerless to stop it. I mean, take the whole issue of human identity, for example, gender. That issue overtook the culture like a tsunami blowing through a, like a paper wall. And the church basically was powerless. Uh, how do you stop it? And of course, many people in churches started accepting it almost immediately. They, they just adopted it. And so competing worldviews like atheism and humanism and communism, new age, the occult, they're being promoted vigorously in education, the media, one-on-one, -on -one, you know, to children and adults alike. And this is all happening at an increasingly terrific rate. 
And, you know, we all have only a limited amount of time and resources and with so many different areas for the church to deal with, we really need to ask ourselves, how do we make a difference? Where do we focus our efforts? Now understand, church leaders are busy, busy with all sorts of things, programs, counseling, marriages that are falling to pieces, youth followed, um, all sorts of things. Um, but did this happen by chance or is there a deeper issue that most Christians just don't seem to get? You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like a giant puzzle and the church just can't seem to find the missing piece, which is exactly why I have that talk called Genesis, a missing piece of the puzzle. Now, when you think about it, it really comes down to fundamentals. You know, it's like a good sports team or a, a business strategy or your own health regimen, for example. You know, when things are crumbling around us, we need to go back to basics. It, it's, it's like putting a building together. Without a strong foundation, a structure will eventually erode and just collapse. So it's like Psalm 11.3 says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And even though it's written in a specific context, this verse should cause us to examine our foundations as believers, which I think will lead us to a better realization of why we're facing the issues that we are today. Now, before we look at our own foundations, what I'd like to do here is um, really examine the, the foundation of a worldview that's in polar opposite of the Christian worldview, and that is the worldview of atheism, because I think it'll help us and, and, and help everyone to really understand some of the root cause as to what's going on in the church and the culture right now. Now, atheism, uh, atheos, by definition, assumes foundationally that there is no God. And of course, all worldviews attempt to provide answers to the big questions in life, like where do we come from? What's the meaning of life? And what happens when you die? So how would an atheist answer the question, um, where do we come from, for example? How do atheists explain our origins without God? Well, their answer is evolution. This gives them an explanation for our existence without God. It's naturalistic, okay? Now, there are some variations to the idea of evolution, of course, but briefly stated, the grand theory of evolution taught today uh, kind of embraces the following ideas. First, we have cosmic evolution. Supposedly, billions of years ago, there was some kind of explosion that caused time and matter and energy to come into existence as the result of a big bang. Hydrogen coalesced. And of course, over billions of years, the galaxies, stars, and planets formed all by themselves. Well, how do we explain where the Earth came from? Well, that's geological evolution. Supposedly, the Earth started off as a hot molten orb, eventually cooled down uh, to allow enough uh, water to condense and, and fill the oceans. And by the way, part of geological evolution would include the formation of those sedimentary rock layers we see all over the world, uh, filled with fossils, filled with dead things, okay? But in order to have dead things, you need to have some live things. So where did life originate? Well, that's called chemical evolution. You see, after billions of years, some non-living chemicals came together, formed the first self-replicating life form that uh, spontaneously generated from these non-living chemicals, of course. Okay, but where do we get all the variety of life? Where do we get all the biodiversity on the planet? Where did that come from? Oh, that's easy. That's called biological evolution. 
you know, this first simple organism became more and more complex over, over millions and millions of years through genetic mutation, natural selection, and ultimately it produced all of the various life forms that have ever existed on the planet, um, you know, over millions of years. Okay, well, where, where did people come from? And then, well, well, that's human evolution, of course. Eventually, ape-like creatures developed higher brain functions and humans evolved and, uh, um, you know, they formed societies and cultures that developed laws and religions and institutions like marriage. And, well, here we are talking about it. And, of course, evolutionists point to the geologic column and the fossils that it contains as scientific proof of these processes and this history that they claim happened in the past. Okay. So what would be the eschatology, shall we say, in this worldview then? Well, according to the laws of thermodynamics and the laws of entropy, uh, eventually all of the available energy in the universe, of course, is going to wind down and uh, reach what's known as heat death. So no, no life form would exist after that. And, you know, we never even know we were here. It's pretty cheery stuff when you think about it. And of course, some conjecture that perhaps everything will collapse and it'll just all begin all over again. So the atheistic worldview based on this supposed history says that we had an accidental beginning. We developed through random processes and that there is no ultimate hope for the future. It says there's no absolutes, no basis for morality or ethics outside of what each person decides is right for themselves. And if you think that I'm overstating this, I'm going to show you a quote from a now deceased professor at bi uh, of biology at Cornell University, the atheist William Provine. And here's what he had to say about these concepts. Let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tell us loud and clear. There are no gods, no purposes, no goal-directed forces of any kind. There's no life after death. When I die, I'm absolutely certain that I'm going to be dead. That's the end for me. There's no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning to life, and no free will for humans either. And this is what he taught. Now, do you remember the three big questions in life? Well, according to the atheist, where do we come from? Evolution. What's the meaning of life? There is no meaning to life. How can there be meaning to life if we're just the result of some random chance cosmic accident? And what happens when you die? Nothing. You're not going to stand in front of a loving God and be judged based on what you've done. You see, ultimately, this worldview teaches people that there is no judgment. And do you know how attractive that worldview is to sinners? They eat it up. And it's being taught as fact and science throughout every major educational institute all over the world. Now understand something. This is a key concept that every Christian needs to understand. Atheism versus theism is almost always misrepresented as science versus faith. It's a science versus faith issue. But this isn't true because evolution is a worldview that is also based on faith. In fact, evolutionists and creationists have the exact same scientific facts to examine. There isn't a scientific observation that a creationist would disagree with an evolutionist about. An observation. What creationists disagree with are evolutionists', evolutionists conclusions because we don't agree with their starting presuppositions, basically that there is no God. 
The real difference is that of the, the world history that each group believes in by faith. Why by faith? Because you can't travel back in time to see the first life form evolve or observe God create the universe. So our understanding of what's happened in the past is ultimately accepted by faith. Now we can, of course, um, use scientific methods to observe evidence in the present. And the fact is science in the present is consistent with the history based on God's word and not man's ideas about the past. The Word of God gives us the truth about the past because it's the inerrant, infallible Word of God given to us by the perfect eyewitness, God. And that stands in stark contrast with man's errant and fallible ideas about the past, which aren't given by any eyewitness. They're just stories. Now look, many Christians believe the creation evolution issue, well, it's just a side issue. Kind of, you know, it's unprofitable you know, for us to focus on. So to many, it just seems kind of divisive, has very little relation to proclaiming the gospel. Well, okay then, let's put that to the test for a second. To find out if this is a side issue or not, let, let's move to the core teaching of virtually all evangelical churches. You know, almost every Christian would agree that the, the key piece of the Christian worldview is our Savior, Jesus. Now, the Bible says that Jesus became the last Adam, died on a cross for sinners and paid the penalty that we deserve so that on judgment day, we won't suffer eternal separation from God in hell. Okay, so what else comes with the message of the cross? Well, the account of the virgin conception or the virgin birth, right? Traditions like Christmas arose from the event of Jesus' birth foretold in the Old Testament. And, you know, Christ was born of a virgin, the, the sinless son of God, perfect in every way. He was, he was able to take on sin as the only suitable sacrifice. Okay, well, what else comes with the message of the cross? Well, of course, the resurrection. Easter Sunday as the celebration uh, of Jesus' resurrection, the, the demonstration of his victory over sin and death. And, and of course, Jesus acknowledged the link between these earthly real time space events relating to the spiritual truths when he spoke to Nicodemus about being born again. Remember, Jesus said this, I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you speak or believe if I speak of heavenly things? He, he said that in John 3.12. So the Bible makes it clear that if these events didn't actually occur, we're still lost in our sins. Our faith is in vain. And we're to be pitied above everyone else. But why was the crucifixion necessary? Why did Jesus have to suffer such a horrible, brutal death? Well, to understand this, we have to return to the foundations of our faith, rooted in the Old Testament in Genesis. You see, Jesus acknowledged the authority of the Old Testament each time that he said something like, well, it is written, or have you not read? That was his authority. The book of Genesis gives us a clear understanding for the reason Jesus came. It was to fix the problem caused by the head of the human race, the first Adam, literally Adam. You see, the Bible describes God's creation of a perfect world, a paradise where everything was very good. Genesis 1.29 says that man and animals ate plants in the beginning. There were no carnivores and there was no bloodshed, of course. There was no sin, no corruption or death. But God gave Adam a command that he should, you know, 
not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and told him what would happen, that death would be the consequence should he do so. And not just a spiritual death. No, from dust you came, Adam, from dust you will return. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew actually reads literally, of the day you rebel, dying you will die. You'll die spiritually immediately. And your body will begin the relentless march towards physical death. I mean, Jesus ultimately died a physical death on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. And unfortunately, Adam chose to exercise his will in God, you know, in clear rebellion against God. And as a result, God cursed the earth and suffering and death entered into this world because Adam was the head of the human race and fell. So his sin nature was passed on to all of his descendants. As a matter of fact, Romans 5.12 says this, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, mankind is now separated from God, not just able to die physically, but spiritually dead as well. So God judged Adam. But as Christians, we should be telling other people that there is a coming judgment, a judgment by fire. But when that future event happens, it will actually be the second time that God will have judged the world. You see, in Genesis 6, Reread how God judged the wicked in the past with a global flood. And it actually says, all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. Read that in Genesis 7, 19. This judgment was sent specifically to destroy everything living on land except for righteous Noah and his family and representatives of the different kinds of land animals on board the great ark. And of course, this is a perfect cause and effect explanation of the fossil record and the billions of dead things that we see buried in sedimentary rocks we find all over the earth. Now, this parallel to the um, coming judgment is spoken of in 2 Peter 3, 6 and 7. It says, by these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed by the same word the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And there you see it first by water and then by fire. Now, after the flood, a while later, God established the law through Moses, which taught right from wrong and, and social doctrines. Most importantly, it was, it was kind of like a spiritual diagnostic to lead people to a righteousness that was beyond themselves. It showed that mankind could never reach God's standard and that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. As we read in uh, Romans 3.23, um, and, and Paul gives you know one of the main reasons why the law was given, where he says, I would not have known what sin was except through the law in, in Romans 7.7. Uh, 7. So the knowledge of sin... And judgment leads people to seek mercy at the cross of Christ. Now, of course, the blessed hope of the Bible is the time after God's coming judgment when he will restore the earth to the way it was in the beginning as far as sin and death is concerned. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, as Revelation 21.4 says. We're going to get new incorruptible bodies and the last enemy, death, will be destroyed. Do you see how the foundational knowledge of where sin and death come from 
and, and how the transforming power of the gospel and the blessed hope of the consummation of all things is so important to understanding what the Christian faith is all about. Perfection, corruption, judgment, salvation, and restoration. This is the big picture of the history of the world and humanity as it has been taught and accepted by the Christian church for some 1,800 years now, up until about 200 years ago in the Western world. Even most non-Christians accepted this history. So what changed? Does this have any bearing on the struggles the church is facing right now? Of course it does. Because about 200 years ago, the concept of millions of years started to gain popularity when certain people started to reinterpret the rocks and fossils, not as the result of Noah's flood, but as a record of millions of years of history. And the idea of this long prehistory recorded in the rocks paved the way for establishing Darwin's theory of evolution. And it's imagined slow, step-by-step processes needing eons of time, which long-age geology then provided. Now, today, this long-age history of the world is promoted by virtually all public education centers. I mean, if you say you don't believe in millions of years, most people look at you like you've got two heads, right? Or you're, you're some kind of flat earther or you're some kind of conspiracy theorist. And even most Christians accept the concept of millions of years. And because many Christians have actually adopted portions of this evolutionary history and attempted to reconcile it with the Bible... Well, many people are wondering things like, well, maybe God could have used evolution or, or if millions of years of evolutionary processes are somehow compatible with the teaching of scripture. Some people feel that science and religion are just two separate areas of thought and maybe that the Bible has no real bearing on the, you know, the real world of science and facts. And as I stated earlier, many people uh, just say, well, it's just a side issue. We don't need to focus on it. Okay, well, let's just look at one aspect of the evolutionary story and see how it impacts Christian theology. See, many Christians um, say that, well, you know, they don't believe in the story of evolution of animals and man per se, but, but they still believe in millions of years of earth history. But the idea of millions of years comes from an interpretation of the sedimentary rock layers all over the world, which are typically assumed to have been deposited um, slowly and which, of course, contain fossils. But as far as the biblical timeline goes, where would you fit those millions of years into the Bible? Virtually no one would attempt to fit these millions of years of history, supposed history, after the account of Adam and Eve. They try to fit it into the Bible before Adam and Eve appear on the scene in the six days of creation. But if that's true, then you have to reconcile the fossil record, which is a record of death. Paleontologists have even discovered carnivorous activity, right? Cancerous tumors. There's thorns in the fossil record. How do you reconcile this? Because it has massive theological implications. If you accept the idea of millions of years, then you're saying that there was, you know, uh, millions of years of death and disease and bloodshed before Adam's sin. But this contradicts the clear teaching of the Bible where God pronounced his completed creation was very good. And after the six days of creation, right, where death occurred after that because the event of Adam sinning, as we read earlier in Romans 
So when you put millions of years of time into the Bible like this, suddenly portions of Scripture make absolutely no sense. How about this? Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Well, if death occurred before Adam sinned, what are the wages of sin? How about Romans 5.12? By one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. Well, death couldn't have entered because of Adam's sin if it was already there for billions of years before that. How about Hebrews 9.22? Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Well, what would the shedding of blood have to do with forgiveness if, of sin if bloodshed had been occurring for millions and millions of years prior to you even needing forgiveness? Can you see how this affects the gospel? It directly affects the gospel. It isn't a side issue. Because Jesus was sent to repay the debt that Adam's sin brought. Jesus died a physical death. He shed his blood. He conquered sin and death and promised to return again and restore the world to the way it was in the beginning. If millions of years of bloodshed occurred prior to man's sin, what will God restore the world to in the future? You see, if the world really is millions of years old, then the creation account seems more like mythology than history. But this is inconsistent with Jesus' teaching. He gave a direct endorsement to and a warning against disbelieving the writings of Moses in John 5, 40, 46 and, and uh, 47. He said this, If you believed Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you don't believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? What did Moses write? Most non-believers today deny the writings of Moses, and they also reject the teaching of Christ. Creation is thought of, you know, in evolutionary terms. You know, sin is something fun, you know, sinfully delicious cookies, you know. The law is no longer absolute right from wrong. It's kind of like whatever each person decides for themselves. And of course, a belief in a global flood is almost universally rejected, even in many churches. For Christians, denying the writings of Moses, but clinging to the teaching of Jesus is inconsistent thinking. Unfortunately, atheists seem to understand these inconsistencies more than most Christians, and they capitalize them on them all the time because they use them to undermine the Christian worldview and promote their own. Let me show you a quote from an atheist, Richard Bozarth, from the February 1978 issue of American Atheist, where he said this, it becomes clear now that the whole justification of Jesus' life and death is predicated on the existence of Adam and the forbidden fruit he and Eve ate. Without the original sin, who needs to be redeemed? Without Adam's fall into a life of constant sin terminated by death, what purpose is there to Christianity? None. What all this means is that Christianity cannot lose the Genesis account of creation. Christianity is fighting for its very life. Well, that certainly seems true in the West sometimes, doesn't it? So, as I hope you can see, if you didn't see this before, the whole issue of biblical authority, starting with Genesis 1 to 11, is far from being a side issue. The whole creation-evolution debate is at the forefront of the assault on the Christian worldview that we see in the culture today. Most Christians have, have questions about science and the Bible. And many people, of course, struggle with their faith because of them. Witnessing can be very difficult because, you know, the world's asking some tough questions in these areas right now. And many Christians, they just can't seem to answer. 
Many times it's hard to share the gospel of Jesus because of questions that arise from the books of Moses, of course. And let's face it, most Christians are just shut down right now. They're not witnessing at all for the most part. Earthly things and heavenly things. What about dinosaurs? Where did Cain get his wife? What about evolution? How could Noah get all those animals on the ark? Was the flood really global? What about these radiometric dating methods? Why is marriage only supposed to be between a man and a woman? How many genders are there? How, what do you believe about abortion, Christian? Well, those are the earthly things, right? If God's good, why is there death and suffering in the world? How do you figure out what right and wrong are? How do you even know there's a God? Why do you need a savior? Those are the heavenly things. And this is why this Great Conversations podcast and the entire Answers in Genesis ministry exists to help equip the average Christian and their families, especially our youth, in this vital area of origins from a God-honoring Bible-first perspective that upholds the authority of the Word of God from the very first verse. These are the issues that we're going to be dealing with here on the podcast, and we're going to be inviting special guests on here regularly uh, to help us do so. You can't separate Jesus from Genesis. You can't separate creation from the consummation. Well, if you're appreciating this content, please visit the AnswersInGenesis.ca website and consider donating to the ministry. And whatever platform, of course, you're accessing this on likely has some combination of features that allow you to subscribe or like or share perhaps do a review and we'd appreciate you taking the time to do so because it's probably the best way the best thing you could do to help us continue to do outreach so until next time i'm cal smith blessing to you and yours hey folks it's cal here uh tune in next week to great conversations where i'm going to be sitting down with dr dustin burlett a phd in old testament to discuss his fascinating journey in discovering the truth of genesis 1 to 11 particularly the great flood described in genesis 6 to 9 and his wrestling with young earth old earth and theistic evolutionary ideas and what finally clinched it for him and made him realize that he could stand on the authority of god's word from the very first verse don't miss it